Del Toro said, quote, to me, it's essential to counter the idea that you have to change into a flesh and blood child to be a real human. All you need to be human is to really behave like one. I have never believed that transformation should be demanded to gain love. You can tell that that's baked into the film in a way that the original was, you do the right thing, you become what society considers to be a real boy, and then you are fulfilled and whole. And he wanted the transformation rather to be an emotional one. Welcome, friends, to episode 261 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss the 2022 film Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I got to say, I waited for the podcast to watch this film. You know, that can be agonizing sometimes for me because there's so much that we want to watch. And this is one of those times that it was just agony for me. I was I wanted to watch it so bad, and I'm, I'm happy to say that after watching it, it lived up to expectations. And um, it took me for quite a journey. Beautiful film. The craftsmanship on display, um, honestly, at every level. The cast is incredible. I think a really smart job was done modernizing the core elements of the story while still staying true to what Pinocchio is and at least culturally and socially has become. Um, it preserved a lot of that while modernizing and and honestly taking it to a level that I didn't even know that the story was capable of, and but yet still felt so appropriate and and like it just really blended well. Um, so yeah, my hats off. I, I really enjoyed this thing, even though I there was a sense that like this is definitely a kids movie. Um, I still found myself just having a great time and thinking like. You know, I don't have small children, but if I had small children like come over for any reason, you know, like a like a nephew or niece or somebody, I would be like, yeah, let's watch Pinocchio. This is a good one to put on. I think I was thinking of this from the perspective of a, of a kid, like if, if I was watching it as a child and I was thinking about how so much of it, while maybe it is a kid's film in quotes, would have gone over my head. There is a lot going on in this film, a lot of subtext, a lot of interesting changes i think to the characterization of pinocchio and then and then some of the world that he's involved in here and like what i just wouldn't have had context for at that age but what i think is doing a lot of groundwork to to kind of familiarize young people with some of the things that they'll go through in life and some of the things they'll come up against and i mean we just to say here like pinocchio as a character historically has been sort of along for the ride and and he is shown how to be a real boy yeah. I think in this film that, that's fundamentally changed to be Pinocchio is changing the world. And I think that that was such a powerful change that that I don't know, it moved me. And I, I have a lot to talk about in that respect. We, we talked uh, last week about the book and we really had fun with it while realizing and highlighting, I think, how it was a, a story that hasn't modernized in a lot of ways. Like reading it t- today, it feels dated in a lot of ways and it feels heavy handed in a lot of its uh, lessons it's trying to teach you. And um, I just felt like it was approached in such a smarter way in this movie. Um, you know, it, it just, my hat's off to Guillermo del Toro for this because this is really impressive work. Um, yeah, and I'm excited to geek out about it more. 
Uh, we do have some housekeeping we wanted to get out of the way real quick early on in this episode. So if you can bear with us for a second. Um, James and I are going to New York City uh, and this weekend. We're leaving. <laughs> um, and it's going to be a lot of fun. We're, we're both spending a, a, a little over a week there. Um, but because of that, it's throwing off our schedule and we're going to be releasing two From the Vault episodes back to back. Um, to give us a, a vacation where we're not worrying too much about episodes coming out. We don't love to do that. It's not something we like to do a lot, but hopefully uh, you will bear with us for that. They are going to be, you know, stuff that was former Patreon exclusives that we will be releasing to the main feed for the first time. If you are a patron, sorry about that. Hopefully this gives you a chance to maybe catch up on some episodes you might have missed in the past. We uh, we certainly have a lot of them. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, hopefully this episode is, is enough to tide everybody over to. This episode's <laughs> going to be a killer one. Yeah, for sure. Also, we are coming up on our first quarterly project uh, for 2023. And I just want to give you a couple dates here that we figured out um, as, as we're coming closer to that. We currently have a pinned post where you can write a suggestion and click the like button on any suggestion that you agree with and your own to help move it up the list. And then what we'll do is on the 18th of March, we are going to select the top four vote getters to make a final poll. That poll will run from the 19th to the 23rd to figure out what our actual quarterly project will be. So once again, those dates are get your suggestions in and your votes on the the wide open field uh, by the 18th of March. Then the poll will run from the 19th to the 23rd. If you're a patron, you can vote on that final poll. Uh, Once you do that, we'll be able to select our first quarterly project for 2023, which we have no idea what it's going to be, fully community voted. Um, So I'm really excited to see what you all come up with. This is your your chance to affect what our podcast covers. So we encourage you to use it. In general, if if you're not familiar and you're not a patron, uh, we do bonus episodes there and we do all kinds of different content. We also have have as a Discord and there's a channel for just Patreon subscribers. So you get some cool access. And if you want to check out our Discord, even if you're not a Patreon uh, member, you can jump in there and we have some pretty cool conversations. And, you know, it's a lot more intimate than, say, a Twitter thread or something like that. Yeah. And speaking of the Patreon situation, it's my understanding that you do not have to be a patron to click the like button on suggestions that you agree with. That's open to anybody who just goes on to Patreon. You have to go to the site, but you don't have to subscribe to us. Basically, I want this part to be open. It's the final poll that will be for patrons only to vote on. Yeah. And just as a heads up, you can become a patron for $1 or $2, as, as little as that. So if that's something you're interested in, check that out. All right. Let's get back to Pinocchio. That's enough, uh, yeah. that's enough of that. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So Pinocchio, uh, we're going to talk general thoughts here. We got to talk about our who are we recommending this for, what we loved about it, and, um, you know, sort of where you were at in comparison to the original material. Uh, I Like I've already said, I would recommend it for for any kids, honestly, that I think it's it's got good lessons behind it and it's modern and it's it's got the magic of Pinocchio that I think has made it an enduring tale for hundreds of years now what are we you know we're going on 200 years um such a, such an amazing piece of work that has lasted and is so popular and the the idea that you were able to modernize it in the way that, that Guillermo del Toro did and not lose that that magic and not lose what I think made Pinocchio special 
is really an achievement. And um, because of that, of course, it's, I think it's also something that adults should watch and, and, and would enjoy. I'm just going to go out and like unabashedly say, like, I recommend this to basically everyone. I think that if you're a fan of Pinocchio, this elevates the material. It takes it to, like you said, a realm that I didn't really know this story could function on. It's so moving. And, and then just, you know, we've, ta- we've talked in the past many times about stop motion animation. I feel that it's one of the most pure ways to create a film in, in this, especially in animation. And it takes such a meticulous, detailed eye and, and a really committed crew for years, way longer than a normal production of a film. And we're talking about like the set design, the character design, and everything that goes into this. And Del Toro being one of the, one of the best living filmmakers uh, wanted to make this all the way back in 2008. And they've basically been developing it since 2008 to now when it's, when it was released. So you think about all of the time and effort that went into a film like this, and you just wish that every film that got a budget had this much effort put behind it. At least I do. And this, this film completely blew me away. I I just, I, I will be talking about this one for years to come. And I think that adult, kid i recommend this to everybody it's uh definitely more nuanced than your your standard pinocchio story i definitely the most i've seen yeah. it's not it's not the pinocchio story you've seen before it is a diff it is fundamentally different while still staying true to some core elements um i also just want to shout out the the gris grimly art from the version we covered because you can see the direct line between that art style a lot of the decisions that were made in those illustrations coming over into the design for especially Pinocchio himself, but even the world beyond. I think a lot of that look and texture was inspired by the Gris Grimley art. Totally. And uh, just to jump ahead into the, the development of this, Gris Grimley was was attached to direct this film for a little while, and Del Toro was going to produce it. And then eventually things changed, and Del Toro came on to fully direct on his own. But, you know, it's been through a lot. This this almost didn't get made multiple times, and it's kind of a miracle that it did. And Netflix, you know, say what you will about some of these streaming platforms and the way that they operate and cancel things. But Netflix saved this one and and that we, you know, it, it exists because of the fact that they were willing to shell out for it. Wow. And, and you know, I'm so glad it does. Um, I, I, I got to highlight the cast. I didn't look up who was in the cast. Um, I remember when I saw the trailer, I recognize Ewan McGregor. I recognize that voice. That was the first one. And so that was like the one name that was kind of kicking around in my head going into this. And that was really it. I had forgotten most of the other names. I'm sure I saw them flash on the screen, but that was, you know, a long time ago. So I forgot them all. And then like listening, I, it was so much fun to keep going. Like, that's a really familiar voice. Who is that? And like seeing if I could guess and then looking it up. And like, I think most of the times I got it right. I'll, I'll highlight a few where I, I couldn't figure out who it was, but then was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Just based on performances, if we're going to talk a little bit about the cast and how amazing it is. First of all, everyone on the list is is top of their class. Not only this is their prestige, but what they bring to this movie. Ewan McGregor, uh, Guillermo del Toro said that the, the voicing, the sessions that they had for the voiceover of these characters, of specifically the cricket, he said that they were the, some of the best performances he's ever seen, especially for a, vo- a voice actor in a sound booth. He couldn't believe how much his performance was shaping the character and changing the movie. They actually restructured some of the movie to add in the narration being from the cricket's POV and having a lot of the scenes from that POV based on his performances because they give you the performance before they go and start articulating the models and start filming the actual um, 
what we see on film. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah. His performance changed this movie into into what we see. Stridulations of My Youth by Sebastian J. Cricket. <laughs> I'm sure you loved anytime that anybody is a writer in, in a story. I, I, like, you know, it's always fun because it's kind of the writer talking, being a little meta about it. But I know that yeah. we've talked in the past and I'm sure as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, Luke's going to love this change. I did, lo- I did love that. <laughs> it, was so, it was very good. Because originally the Cricket is kind of just this like moral person who comes along and gives advice and then you change him into this writer who's kind of also learning a lesson along the way it's interesting our perspectives on this because we've seen the disney film i don't know about you but like it's probably been since i was a kid since i watched it at least all the way through i'm sure i've seen clips and stuff since but um it's very it's like i don't remember a lot of specifics about the disney version um and then we read the book, so that was what was freshest in our mind, and I think that's what it was kind of engaging with most directly, but I'm sure, you know, we've encountered this in past adaptations like Dune and stuff where it's like, I'm sure there are things that are being referenced and engaged with from the other adapt- the other famous adaptation that maybe I'm missing, I- and I'm not sure. The fairy is, shows up very early on in the story, and that change happened here in this in this film as well this fairy does show up early and it's the same kind of animation process that happens in the disney film not the kind of process that happens where he's already a talking piece of wood in the book version so you know he's already he's pulling from all of it and i think it's it it was really smart about the ways that it decided to pull from different adaptations and and kind of be its own in certain certain places like he knew just where to place the pieces to to have this like perfect chess game basically yeah i don't know when this is appropriate to talk about but um i i couldn't believe that there was a second pinocchio that came out around the same time as this Three in the same year. There's three? <laughs> in the span of 365 days, there were three. One of them was, I think it's Polly Shore voicing Pinocchio. Oh, my God. <laughs> he has a really crazy voice, and he says, like... That sounds like a joke. He says, when can I leave to be on my own? And the way that he says it just went, like, really viral on the internet, and people were putting stuff, like, TikToks and Instagram reels and stuff. People oh, were man. using that sound. Uh, <laughs> so there was that one, and then there was the Disney one with Tom Hanks. Okay. as Geppetto. And uh, that one came out very close to the release of this one as well. And you got to think, okay, so Guillermo del Toro's has been in development forever. Everybody in Hollywood knows it's out there. And then it's starting to, you know, culminate in, a, in an actual eventual eventual releasable film. And then Disney gets whiff of that. And they're like, all right, well, we got to put together a Pinocchio and drop it right around the same time and kind of take back this IP that's, you know, now... Public domain. So, so they basically, like, dropped it around the same time. And then, like... Clearly, one is getting a lot of acclaim, and one is sort of forget forgotten. And on That's, Disney, Plus. I have not seen the other two versions, um, but I, I have not heard that they are necessarily worth seeing. As much as I like Tom Hanks, I, I don't think I'm going to be checking it out. I, agreed, and it's uh, you know, this one is getting a ton of award nominations and everything like that. But you know, after seeing it, I'm like, as an art form, and, and as like, if you're going to go make a film, how along the way you have a lot more time to think about what's actually happening in the story. And if you're going to commit this amount of man hours to making a film like this, that's more difficult in ways, uh, you're going to want a really solid story. And I think there's a lot of stop motion films that benefit from the fact that like before they pull the trigger and start, they really have their ducks in order. Can we talk about like there's a little bit of discussion going around and I was just at this writing retreat and I was talking with some other writers about it. Um, This whole artificial intelligence art create you know being created if you even want to call it art um and to me it like a lot of the question comes back to like 
authenticity and origin and intention behind artists, right? And the choice to make a stop motion film with physical, actual puppets instead of trying to simulate the look of it in CGI, which you could do. And I'm sure there's some CGI elements. I'm sure that that's going on here. But still, the decision was made to do it even though some people might argue you don't really have to to get a similar effect. But there's something to be gained, I think. And and that's that artistry and intentionality and limitations. Um, I think all of that helps make this movie what it is. And it shows to me that authenticity and artist intention and things like that can still carry so much weight um, in a world, unfortunately, that's being threatened by this sort of like sludge that is getting produced by AI programs that is maybe amusing, but is not, you know, art on the level of this, of course. Right, right. And I want to be clear, like we're not talking about like CG. There, you can put the same amount of time into CG work, right? You can put the same meticulous detail into CG work and it can look incredible, be unlike anything you could ever make in the real world. That's a good distinction. What you're talking about here is like specifically someone taking a shortcut and and making something like you said that isn't authentic that isn't genuine that doesn't come from the artist's intention but instead is like sort of an amalgamation of many different people's talents it's just that you've you've run something through a program that is adding sort of randomized stolen <laughs> honestly uh uh elements that to to replicate an effect that um you don't know what it's going to look like when you hit enter but then you see it at the end and go yeah that looks kind of like what I want. All right, that's good enough. And we're going to be seeing a lot of stuff that's going to be doing that, um, you know, and, and and not just in film, but, you know, all over creative spaces right now. So I just like that. I'm just trying to say that I, I am happy and proud to support a movie like this that to me seems like the polar opposite of that of that movement that is unfortunate. And I don't think it's lost on us that Del Toro went out to make a movie about a puppet using puppets, right? Like that's like there's an intention behind that and an appreciation like that I think most audiences will have for the craftsmanship. And there's there's a reason why when these movies, these stop motion movies come out that they always have these big pushes for the behind the scenes reels to see the actual artist creating the film and the way that like, you know, I watched a few things with Del Toro and he talked about how he left a lot after you know he's set his vision and he has to trust these these artists to manipulate and create the scene in the film like he that he's basically handing off his vision and they're actually performing it like an actor would they're they're the actors the the people who are articulating the the models and and then you know you're talking about the ai thing as well and i i there's a quote that i wanted to read that's kind of along these lines and it gets to the theme of this film and Del Toro said, quote, to me, it's essential to counter the idea that you have to change into a flesh and blood child to be a real human. All you need to be human is to really behave like one. I have never believed that transformation should be demanded to gain love. You can tell that that's baked into the film in a way that the original was you do the right thing. You become what society considers to be a real boy and then you are fulfilled and whole. 
And he wanted the transformation rather to be an emotional one. Yeah, let's revisit that at the end because I, I definitely have a lot of thoughts along that along that path. But I thought that was good to mention because you're talking about AI. And if we're talking about AI, we also need to talk about like the, the connection that Pinocchio has to AI, like we talked about sure. in the book last week. And the way that a lot of people look at Pinocchio as like, okay, what level of sentience or, or what was the other word that you used last week? Sapience. Sapience. What level of these two distinctions do you need to hit in order to be considered real and all those yeah. other things? Disney wasn't thinking about that sort of thing when he was making his version and neither was the author, um, Collodi. Uh, I don't think he was either, but the, the way that we can see that happening now and we're going to be grappling with these ideas for a long time to come is when does Pinocchio become a real boy? There's a lot wrapped up in this story that is outside of the realm of just the plot. I, I just want to just put a marker on this. This is March 7th, <laughs> we're recording this, uh, of 2023. I don't know where we're going to go with a lot of this AI-generated art, you know what I mean? And maybe things will change, and maybe we'll feel differently about it in the future. I know when it was first coming out, I was very excited to play with the tools, especially as a, uh, someone who is not uh, talented enough to draw, I thought it was cool to be able to enter in some keywords and see certain drawings. And I do think it's amusing. Of course, I think that there are lines that get crossed when you start trying to monetize it and start trying to pass it off as, as like original pieces of art that you've created. Um, but we as a society are still figuring out where those lines are drawn, I think. And, you know, I think laws are trying to figure out where those lines are drawn. Um, and so I don't want to come off as a hypocrite because, like, I know that I've played around with these technologies. And I think that they are tools that are going to make certain things easier in the artistic process that they might have a role. I'm just not sure what the role is, and I'm not going to pretend to know. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting debate that we're still at the, I think, early stages of in a weird way. It's going to continue to be something we're going to be talking about for a long time to come, I think. But I think you're right. That's a good distinction is, like, they – I think that there will be – ways to apply it while also still, you know, maintaining our creativity and, and unique individuality and everything like that. That's going to be the challenge because we don't you don't want to lose that. What makes art special to me has always been the human intentionality behind it. Um, and well, and expressing the human condition, right? Yeah. Like, and what that has been could change in the future based on our distinctions of like what is human. Like I, it's going to get. Yeah. Who knows, man? We can't we can't get into it all here, but um, it's fun that this is a project that's making us think about it a little bit. I do. I want to jump into the development, and I want to talk about Del Toro some. So at this okay. point, I think I'll jump in there. Uh, Guillermo Del Toro is a Mexican film director, screenwriter, and producer who is known for imbuing horror and fantasy films with emotional and thematic complexity. Del Toro developed an interest in both film and horror stories as a child. He began making short films while in high school and later studied filmmaking at the University of Guadalajara. He subsequently learned the art of movie making from legendary film makeup artist Dick Smith. Del Toro spent much of the 1980s working as a special effects makeup artist and he co-founded Necropia, a special effects company. Uh, so Del Toro wrote and directed several episodes of the 1988 to 1990 television horror series, Horror Marcada, before creating and helming his debut feature film, Kronos. The movie about the effects of a device that confers immortality won nine aerial awards from the Mexican Academy of Film, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Original Story, and also received the International Critics Week Grand Prize at the Cannes Film Festival. His next movie was an American Miramax production, Mimic, in 1997. 
He followed it up with a ghost story set at the end of the Spanish Civil War, 2001's The Devil's Backbone. Del Toro won more widespread notice with his comic book adaptations Blade II and Hellboy in 2004, which he also had a hand in writing. Then the visually dazzling and thematically intricate fantasy Pan's Labyrinth in 2006, which Del Toro both wrote and directed, won Academy Awards for makeup, art direction, and cinematography. Let me let me jump in real quick. I just want to say, while, while it's mentioned, Pan's Labyrinth still one of my favorite movies um, of all time. Absolutely yeah. love that movie. Yeah. I still point to that as one of my favorites as well. He, um, he then co-wrote and directed Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, and the sci-fi action film Pacific Rim, which proved to be more popular worldwide than in the U.S. The gothic horror film... Crimson Peak in 2015 met with mixed reviews. However, the bewitching fantasy romance The Shape of Water in 2017, uh, which Del Toro wrote the story and co-wrote the screenplay, was nominated for 13 Academy Awards and won four, including Best Picture. Yeah. Um, that gets us kind of caught up. But well, we then, covered Cabinet of Curiosities already on the yeah. podcast. So that was the other time we touched on him. So we're kind of caught up to like where he's basically like a household name. He's super prolific, just producing TV shows and animation and all the stuff that he's created. And, you know, like you said, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. He is a champion of horror and science fiction. And he has a museum. One of his homes is just a museum to that. Uh, he, you can tell that in his work. We're going to talk about it in this film. Heavy Frankenstein vibes, which is another project we covered on the podcast. Yeah, I did pick um, up on that. Yeah, like visual references to, and, and so like just seeing someone like this, and he's the the kind of filmmaker that I aspire to be, and I am so in awe of. He, you know, there's so many out there working, and yet he just like stands alone as his own. He has his own style. He has his own way of we have functioning in the space and he has like box office appeal clearly one of my favorites just based on the, his style and, and the, the kinds of things that he's into unabashedly a genre guy right like he's so many sci-fi horror things in their speculative fiction and he's telling really interesting stories and i love that he's experimenting and he's trying things and maybe it doesn't always work he's not always winning oscars but um he's making interesting films and he's growing as an artist and and i i gotta admire that yeah, and as we talked about in Cabinet of Curiosity, he's also a big lover of other filmmakers and he props others up along his path. And I just he just he just continues to be the coolest person and I love him. And <laughs> this this work was no different. So getting into the development of this one. Uh, he started he announced it in two thousand eight that he was creating a darker adaptation of the adventures of Pinocchio. Um, he said it's his passion project. quote, no art form has influenced my life and my work more than animation and no single character in history has had as deep of a personal connection to me as Pinocchio. And quote, I've wanted to make this movie for as long as I can remember. So that's awesome. And he has many of these where he's like, oh, I've wanted to make this forever. I've wanted to make this forever. But to know that like he saw the original Disney when he was a child, he saw the original 1940s animated Disney film. um, And he partially liked it because he felt like it was a horror movie because of a few intense moments that it included and you know we kind of mentioned that as well some of the body horror maybe in the, in yeah, the disney turning film. into a donkey i think is <laughs> horrifying <laughs> and day. and like a giant whale swallowing you up there's just some intense moments in that film he he's a lover of animation and yet this is his first f- animated film like feature film so it's cool to note that 
this stop motion animation film was his first step in the feature film world in animation, whereas in the television world, tons of animation under his belt. How do you go about getting a movie like this made? Like, is he working with a studio that's known for doing stop motion? Yeah, definitely. And uh, you're going to find this particularly interesting. Because I was thinking of like Coraline and some of the other stuff like that. that we've yeah, done. so Leica is a big one, and that's mm-hmm. over in your area, right? Over yeah. in Portland. So I wanted to note Shadow Machine is maybe like a 20-minute walk from where you're at. Really? In Portland, Oregon. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's like it's in Portland, Oregon. There's a waterway and two bridges like right near your area. I don't want to say the okay, name of your sure, area, yeah. but right, right there. Yeah, yeah. The same distance that 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 district is basically like one more of those over is how far away this place is. So right in your backyard in 2020, this f- filming began uh, and it went up until, you know, 2022 the film during the pandemic. So the whole time you were you were just blocks away from from this being made, this Del Toro production. That's and amazing. so I, I went looking and, and I realized that that area is really huge for for stop motion animation. It's really cool. He approached a studio like that, and I also read that some of it was done in in with in his studio in Mexico that he has. So it's kind of done in many different locations depending on what the set is. Mm-hmm. But um, man, I just it, one day that's a passion project for me as well. I'd love. I'm gonna work on a stop motion animated film. Yeah, man, you gotta start applying for jobs out here. Look look at that. Look at that shadow. What was it? Shadow Run. Shadow Machine. Shadow yeah. Machine. There you go. I think it's more that like I want to <laughs> I want to jump on and hire a company like that. But yeah, you know, who knows? Like I, I would definitely be open to considering that. So um, Del Toro in his teen years, he had longed to make his own version of Pinocchio. In 2003, he discovered Chris Grimley's illustrations for the 2002 edition of Carlo Collodi's book uh, portraying Pinocchio as a puppet with a long pointed nose and spindly limbs with gestures that Del Toro felt captured the energy of an unruly but otherwise good hearted puppet. He concluded that Grimley's illustrations reflected the setting he had in mind for his own more somber version of Collodi's tale. Yeah, I could totally see it. In 2011, it was announced that Grimley and Mark Gustafsson would co-direct a stop motion animated Pinocchio written by Del Toro and his longtime collaborator Matthew Robbins. It would be visually based on Grimley's designs. Del Toro would produce the film along with the Jim Henson Company and Pathé. Grimley devised Pinocchio's look for the film, depicting him as unfinished wood. Though Grimley was initially set to direct the film and Del Toro was set to produce, on May uh, 17th of 2012, Del Toro took over as director. He then teamed up with Gustafsson, a stop-motion veteran who had experience in similar stop-motion features like Fantastic Mr. Fox to assist him in achieving his ambitious vision for the project. Wow, yeah, I mean, that unfinished look was really um, striking. I, I love that there was, like, little branches coming off of him still, um, and it totally, they, they made it work narratively with this woodcutter because he was drunk as he's putting them together, and, like, he's, he's like, I'll finish you in the morning. Like, he's not even done, um, so it totally, it totally works. Yeah, I loved it, and I heard Del Toro talk about that, too, how, like, he really, the one side is really, the ear is really well done, and everything looks great on this side, and then it's just, like, half hazard on the other side. <laughs> In July of 2012, it was announced that the film would be produced and animated by Shadow Machine. It was originally scheduled to be released in 2013 or 2014, but went into development hell with no further information forthcoming about it for years. In November of 2017, Del Toro reported the project was not happening because there were not studios who wanted to finance it. And then October 2018, it was announced the film would be revived with Netflix acquiring it and Pathé no longer involved. Good job, Netflix. Don't get to say that a lot these days. 
I know, right? <laughs> it's uh, you know, I I still like the fact that they're they're willing to fund stuff like this, but you know, well, that was five years ago, so hopefully they still are. And that's for all streaming platforms, not just Netflix. Let's just you know, yeah, that's true. Almost all the years of development were spent by Del Toro and Gustafsson defining the designs for the principal characters, basing them on either Grimsley's designs or letting Del Toro's frequent collaborator Guy Davis who joined the project as co-production designer with the Box Trolls and Isle of Dogs, art director Kurt Enderley, to design them. They then gave the animation models to England's McKinnon and Saunders stop-motion puppet firm, which is considered by Del Toro to be, quote, the best in the world. And they fabricated the designs of Pinocchio, Geppetto, Sebastian J. Cricket, Count Volpe, and Spazatura. So they had most of them machined, basically, to be sort of like... Um, Almost like they, they said it was basically like the inside of a Swiss watch. Tons of different gears moving and things like that. Pinocchio was the only character, I think that was, first of all, was the first character to be entirely 3D printed. Um, and then they had the swapping out of the faces that we've talked about in the past for different emotions, for things like Coraline and many other. They 3D print tons and tons of basically any emotion. And then that way they can just step the face up in terms of speech and, and emotion. So... That's pretty cool that they did that. And then, like I said, some of the characters, you just articulate the eyebrow and it would stay in place or articulate something. And because of all those gears and everything, like as you move it, it's already ready to stay in place. So that's so cool, man. Pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. Those armatures are just incredible. I think I saw pictures of him on the red carpet somewhere, like holding some of yeah. the puppets. Oh, yeah. He loves he loves the Pinocchio puppet. When he when he was at one of these, I think it was the Golden Globes. He was out there like holding it and he had it on the carpet. And Bigger than I, I, I guess I would have thought. But I mean, I guess it, it, I should have known. Oh, well, the, you should watch some of the and I recommend everybody does this. Watch some of the behind the scenes stuff because they had one Pinocchio version that was massive, like 10 feet tall because they wanted to have basically like the cricket whispering in his ear so to do that practically and fill the frame they had like they made like a full-size cricket and a giant pinocchio that's yeah. funny rather than make a tiny cricket they had to make a giant pinocchio <laughs> yeah some of these behind the scenes things are so cool like there's a shot when spazatura is running through the market or something and kind of jumping and the camera's following him and it's such a complex camera move in addition to the you know the moving the armature they said it took him three three months to get that shot and so that just goes to show you like how how much time this stuff takes. Well, in the lighting, like I'm looking at these scenes and I'm seeing dynamic sunlight, you know, simulated sunlight like playing on the on the puppet itself coming in through windows and they're using that to do like filmmaking storytelling that you usually do um and make make it dynamic and how much that's got to be really difficult to to do, right? Um with these little puppets. Having been on many sets, I couldn't help but think about <laughs> people bump C stands and people bump lights and things like that. So you must yeah. have to like secure these in place or, <laughs> or have them marked perfectly yeah. in order to make this like consistent throughout. So no, nobody clumsy allowed on set. I shouldn't be on set those days. <laughs> I, I would be stepping on shit. I'd be bumping shit. Yeah. Keep me out of there. <laughs> To get into some of the writing process, Del Toro uh, went in with uh, The Adventures of Pinocchio by Claudia and also Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in mind, which we've already talked about some, but he, th he thought there were really intriguing similarities here. Both tell of a childlike figure brought to life and thrown into the world by a father figure who expects him to discover on his own the qualities that make us human, such as love and the capacity to distinguish between right and wrong. And I thought that was an interesting change for Geppetto because in, normally Geppetto is sort of the voice of reason. He's the person to look to for guidance, everything in these stories. And then 
although, you know, he's not in most of them for very long, influencing Pinocchio's life. Whereas in this one, he is around for quite a while. Yeah. Um, and, but most, and then in this way, he's a flawed character. And I think showing a lot of these characters with flaws and, and specifically the way that Pinocchio is influencing everyone else to sort of change their frame of reference in the way that they're, they're, you know, willing to engage with the world because we learned in this story, it takes place in fascist Italy as, you know, bef- before and I think maybe even partly during World War II. Yeah, I think during, that's why they're talking about going to war and stuff so much. And, which I think is a smart change. Like, I mean, the, the book was written well before, it was in the 1800s, so it was well before World War II. Um, it still felt, it made it feel like a classic tale in the way that I think it needs to for it to work really well for me. Um, but you were able to bring it to an era that you can use to talk about relevant topics. I love that fascism um, is presented as this other force that will try and tell you to obey. It's like obeying the state and obeying people who you shouldn't obey and how that distinction is not made in the book. Um, But Del Toro wanted to make the distinction between like listening to your well-meaning father who maybe has, you know, your best interests in heart and listening to the fascists, you know, and people like that. He has a character whose father is a fascist and having to grapple with your father telling you to do something and you kind of having to think as an individual. Candlewick, yeah. Um, so getting back to some of the Frankenstein comparisons, he he was partly inspired to give Pinocchio, his Pinocchio, a gothic direction. Um, but the film he wanted was still going to be crafted to be family friendly. He sought to make connections across generations and convey compassion, a value Del Toro feels is essential for children faced with the tremendous complexity of today's world. So yeah, kind of talking, talking about what you were just talking about there. Yeah, I totally, I I was thinking about how much like this would be one of my go-to movies if I ever needed to just like throw a movie on for some kid, like a this is a good choice, I think. This I'd be like, this film is anti-fascist, child. So I hope you I hope you appreciate that and, and can take some lessons from that. Del Toro wanted to move away uh, from it being very magical and tons of magical creatures. While there are some, he wanted it to have more realism, and I think that's some of what we yeah, get into. There was less talking animals, and I was kind of, I was kind of expecting we'd see some more talking animals and some of the more fantastical stuff. But then we did get a bunch of really kind of magical, mystical scenes. So. He didn't completely move away from it. Some of the stuff that he digs into, I heard Del Toro talk about how this film is about death. This this is a film about death. And and that's really a bold stance to take on a Pinocchio film. And the way that he basically goes on to say that it's about death because without death, you can't appreciate life. And that's sort of a lot of what you get in this film is that idea. And that, like, I think having that through line and that thread in there and the way that he sets up Geppetto's backstory and what he deals with and, and the way that Pinocchio sort of mirrors some of the things that we learn about, that was the thing. That, that was the tear-jerking element. And I will say it was totally a tear-jerker. I cried in this film. It was nice. it was uh, <laughs> magical. It was a really good end- ending. And just in general, this, this story took me on quite a journey. So I think at this point we can jump into the plot if you're ready. Let's do it. In Italy during World War II, in a fit of drunken rage 20 years after losing his son Carlo to an aerial bombardment during the Great War, the carpenter Geppetto cuts down a pine tree and uses it to create a wooden boy. The wood sprite brings the puppet to life, christening him Pinocchio, and assigns homeowner Sebastian J. Cricket, who already lives inside the pine tree just before Geppetto cut it down, to guide him as his conscience. I would argue that he's not his conscience in this in this film, but that's what the summary says. He tries to be. 
he but I think he's more supposed to be his heart based on the placement of a few things. Okay. We'll we'll talk about that. Uh promising Sebastian a wish in exchange for guiding him. Geppetto wakes up to a living Pinocchio, but becomes terrified and fed up with his antics, including lying, which makes his nose long every time he lies, resulting in the village Podesta ordering Geppetto to send Pinocchio to school. On his way, Pinocchio is intercepted by a showman, Count Volpe, and his monkey, Spazatura, who brings Pinocchio to their circus. Geppetto arrives to take Pinocchio back, resulting in a confrontation between him and Volpe, that ends with Pinocchio being fatally hit by a truck. In the afterlife, he meets the wood sprite's sister, Death, who explains to Pinocchio he is immortal, and revives him when an hourglass empties. Death cautions that the more he dies, the more time he will spend in the afterlife. Introduce almost a video game element to this. <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> Adding in the, the fairy, the blue fairy, being life or the wood sprite, and then also introducing Death in this way. I thought was one of the coolest elements. Which cool designs too. They look like sphinxes kind of like they are. And, and I noticed, and I don't, I haven't heard anybody else talk about this, so I'll take credit for this. Um, <laughs> okay. The, and it's might be blatantly obvious to those in the know, but if you've ever seen a depiction of a biblically accurate angel, they totally had that. My wife pointed that out. Yeah. They have, they have multiple wings. They have many eyes, yeah. tons of eyes all over them. Man, this is, this is really cool. And the way that he threads biblical... Now, I tend to not love adding biblical things to stories. I feel like sometimes it can cheapen it. Sometimes if done well, it is like a universal touchstone for many people with certain baggage they can bring. Yeah. I thought this story did really well navigating a lot of the biblical yeah. like imagery and, and substance. Like There's the Jesus stuff that we can talk about at, oh, and yeah. like the way that maybe Pinocchio is a Jesus-like figure and in, in coming back and possibly... Yeah. I can see that. Saving people. Uh, I just thought it was well done. And and I think that's difficult to navigate, but it also brings a certain amount of weight to a story. Sure. Well, let's go all the way back to Carlo, uh, who I think is obviously named in reference to the author. That was a cool way to, to sort of um, honor his legacy, right? Um, is the, the name of the real boy. And uh, also one of the first voices that I was like, who is this? And I had to look it up. I didn't get it until I looked it up. But then I, I saw that it was Lord Frey himself from Game of Thrones as Geppetto. Um, Walter Frey. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh, man, what a different kind of role for him. Um, uh, Argus Filch to some, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I thought he did a good job. And then um, I liked that the origin of Pinocchio is explored in a way that we kept talking about how in the book, Carlo does not seem interested uh, at all in exploring the origin of Pinocchio and how this came to be. So instead we get this, this pine cone that is this perfect pine cone that Carlo grabs, but then gets exploded. Like Carlo gets killed by a bomb. Um, Did you like a lot of this backstory? I, it was pretty good. Like I said, I, I think it was smart because it explores the origin of Pinocchio and I like that he took that pine cone and buried it, and that grew into the tree that eventually he would cut down and make into Pinocchio. So the wood itself is special in a way that makes it sense when it gets imbued. But then you still bring in the the wood sprite. You still bring in these spirits from the woods that gives it a mystical element. Um, and all of that is added, right? And none of that's in the book. So I thought it was a cool way to make it very personal, to to, to highlight the mystical nature of it. You set up this bargain that you know is going to come back and be important with this with this wish granting and all this stuff. Um, you set up the cricket as someone who's interested in this particular wood. <laughs> um, 
it, it was all it was all very smartly done. And I knew I was like, ah, oh, this is going to pay off, I think. Um, and sure enough, it did, I think, because he just feels so much more special and personal to Geppetto. And their relationship needs to feel that way. Whereas we talked about how he just buys him in the book. He just shows up like the woodcutters, the guy who gets the special wood. It's Geppetto just shows up and buys it um, and then Mm -hmm. carves it into Pinocchio. This might be a little extreme and I might be just, you know, bias based on how how recent this is. But people talk a lot about like the preamble or like the the epigraph. What what would you call this like little beginning that's sort of outside of the main story? Prologue. There you go. Great, great use of the correct word. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> I love a prologue, but yeah, they are they are controversial a little bit. Yeah. So there's a prologue here, and it reminds me a little bit of the beginning of Up in in a prologue that a lot of people love, and it's really emotional. It gives you like a lot of the the motivation and the in the sort of oomph that will begin the story and and send you along. Not your nearly way. as devastating as Up though is. Yeah, I, I don't quite. think, he, and I, would, I don't think he was trying to be. I don't think he wanted everybody like blubbering by the time they get through the the prologue, which like up definitely has everybody. Doing. It definitely does that. Yeah, yeah correct. <laughs> but it is it's emotional enough, and you see how much it's it's you know informing who Geppetto is as a character, and that's why I love that we get so much more of Geppetto. Because if we had gotten this, and then as little Geppetto, I feel as you get in the main in the original story, and even in the the Disney film, it doesn't pay off. Like you said, there's not like a payoff to all of this this prologue so i thought i I don't know i thought smartly done and i also noted that he had to have the perfect pine cone and there's something like there's this perfectionist streak like somebody in town says something about geppetto being a perfectionist yeah you're right and how that's something that he's sort of breaking his mold of because he grows to love pinocchio more the son the original carlo even finds one early that he says no that's not the right one it has to be perfect and that's something that i think he has to that's an element where he's going to have to grow because he has to learn to accept things for what they are, which is such a great message. And that's what I think that, you know, the, that is definitely a shift from the original message of Pinocchio, which is be what your father wants you to be. Right. <laughs> or else. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I So in the behind the scenes, I also was listening to a lot of how the animators and production design team and Del Toro himself, they were, they were using a lot of like common, almost like motifs or common moments in the film and they took the idea of the pine cone scaling and they built like one of the the i believe it was death like the tail of death is kind of the same kind of scaling that you would see on the pine cone okay and in that way like threading things together and there was apparently a lot of that throughout the film where visual sort of callbacks and things were being threaded together and intentionality didn't we just talk about that being intentional in a really cool way that it's it's a benefit of the long production time of of, of a stop motion animated film that you have more time to plant these details in and, and to do that all as like a full circle sort of thing. So, yeah, intentionality. Totally. Yeah. And then we, we get some of the like this. This first song isn't necessarily my favorite. Like I, I have favorites that occur later, but there's some really funny moments. I thought in particular the chamber pot. Uh, when he's oh yeah he's like what is this what is this and he gets the chamber pot out and he's like oh you don't want to touch that and he like puts it on his head and the reactions too yeah they're like Geppetto's like no no <laughs> yeah. god no so funny um and he's I also love the way he is sort of lurching and and kind of scary when when he's first met by Geppetto um he does seem kind of like a monster at first and and um Geppetto ends up like locking him away or trying to. And he comes on so strong. Pinocchio, you're so, you come on so strong. 
he's too <laughs> innocent. He's too innocent for his own good. But uh, let's talk about the these actual scene. We'll call it the the creation scene, where it is so so much a callback to the to the Frankenstein film that we watched for the podcast. Yep. I have I have it in my notes. I was like, it's such a Frankenstein moment as he's the way yeah. the intensity, the way that he's sort of gashing into things yeah. and and like clearly he's the, doing. The, it seems like he's doing something that is uh you know against the natural order here as he's building a boy. So great, and I just like applaud Del Toro for it's a smart way. Yeah, smart way to find two classic pieces of literature and and find common ground in them, and find you know a way to use one to sort of you know comment on the other, uh, and, and you know within your work and your interpretation. Very cool. Maybe my first like true laugh out loud moment was when the fascist guy comes over to the house because he's like trying to talk to him about like, well, are you going to make him go to school? You know, you got to make him go to school if you're going to have this child. He's very misbehaving. Um, and then, you know, he's talking to Candlewick. He ends up burning his feet and all that. But um, at one point, the fascist looks at him and goes, he's made of good Italian pine. <laughs> and, like, that was like the thing that made him like him. And I just thought that was so funny. It, it, you know, obviously, thematically for a fascist, it like kind of works. Um, but man, was it funny. Yeah, the I loved like early on, we're getting Geppetto saying like, you know, he's scared for not he's kind of scared for Pinocchio because he kind of cares about him already. But he's also scared for himself in a fascist society where you need to not make waves if you're you know, if you're maintaining the status quo. And then you have somebody who just comes along and says who, why, what, when, where, you know what I mean? Asking all the questions, um, pushing back against some of them because it just like, you know, because I don't want to. And in that way showing how these people maybe are not guilty. Uh, they don't seem to be full on fascists that are, you know, but they're living in a fascist society and they're not questioning yeah. it. Well, the guy with the red armband is a full on. Yes, that guy is totally a fascist. Yeah. Ron Perlman, would, by the way, he was one I had to look yeah. up. because so I was like, this voice is so familiar. But when I looked it up. I was like, oh, of course, it's Ron Perlman. Yeah, they've collaborated like nine times together. Of course, I should have known, right? Yeah. Geppetto is keeps telling him like, you're not, you're not, a good boy. You're not Carlo. You're, you're, you know, you're somebody else. And I thought there was an interesting moment where I think it's right before the fascist guy shows up. Um, Pinocchio finishes the line about the nose and, and like how the nose will grow if you lie. And he seems to know that line, even though he shouldn't have, because he's not the one who he got read the stories to. And I like that that is just like a little bit of a connection between Pinocchio and Carlo and you can see that it kind of lodges in the mind of Geppetto, even though he immediately has to like change gears as you know he's forced to shift as the other guy shows up. But that becomes an interesting recurring thought. How much of a connection is there between Pinocchio and his son? They're not one and the same, and I think the movie goes on goes out of its way to say that they're not one and the same. But yet there is a connection there, and it is mystical in a way. Um, there's like a continuation of sorts. Um, yeah, we'll call him a spiritual successor. Sure. There you go. An adaptation, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> yeah, an adaptation. Early on, I thought they were going to go that route. I thought they were going to say, okay, like he's kind of reincarnated. Is he going to come back as Carlo or something? Yeah, you never know. But I think it's more interesting to think of expectations of a, of a father or a, or a parent and sort of comparing, you know, c- people comparing. There's just flaws to people. And we, we all do this kind of stuff. And so to see Geppetto not quite realizing what he's doing to this living, breathing boy uh in comparing him to carlo who has been dead for 20 years and he sees as perfect and i think that that's like far 
more complex and it, it lends itself to like a, a better story. I like the conflict they have between it as well. Eventually where Pinocchio basically out and out says like, I'm not Carlo. I'm my own person. So gosh, that uh, reminds me of some other stuff we've been watching, but I won't get into it because it could be spoilery. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's stuff just keeps coming back. Right. Um, I'll say before we get out of this section, a couple more things we introduced Volpe uh, and he, uh, that one, I immediately was like, is that Christoph Waltz? And I looked it up and it is uh, love Christoph Waltz, right? Like he's, he's, we, we got to cover him. I think only once, uh, um, what's the name of the one we covered him in water for elephants. Um, but you know, he's so great. I like, I've, I've seen him in several things where I like really liked him. And of course it's funny here. He thinks a good villain um, working in a carnival again, which is similar to water for elephants. Um, and you know, he's, he's, he's quite a figure, I guess the fire breather character. He's basically that. Um, but a lot more central. He, he, he plays a stronger role here. I think he's multiple characters combined. If I remember in my reading, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then there's also like a whole, the whole fascist element and like the, you know, Hitler youth basically that they join, um, like that's all added. So we'll get to that later, but, um, yeah, he he plays that role, and then also uh, the when when Pinocchio dies, gets hit by the wagon, which was what you ended the the summary on, and he wakes up and he's being like carted by these four like bone rabbits, who then play poker while he's there. Weren't and, like, there like rats or rabbits or something like that in the in the original story as well that were like gonna take him somewhere if he was dead or. I thought I remembered there being like four mice or something. Oh, like that. maybe because like he, visit his bedside when he's like sick. He, there are doctors, and I think one of them might be a rabbit because there are talking animals in the book. So you might be onto something there. But yeah, I don't think they were skeleton rabbits. Um, and then like clearly there's something very supernatural is going on because he has to go in the next room and he talks to Death, who's this like sphinx-like a- a- angel-like creature so i thought tilda swinton did a great job uh as these like blue blue spirits i i guess plays both you were telling me so mystical and magical and uh otherworldly <laughs> i just love this added element i i thought that this was one of the this is the del toro touch right this is the thing that makes him different yeah and i was i didn't know where it was going and it, it totally pays off but when you introduce this element of oh each time you die it's going to take a little bit longer to go back and I'm like, why is that going to be? That's going to be important, clearly. And then, of course, I'm like, if I really start to think about it, I might have been able to figure it out. But instead, I'm watching the movie, so I, I don't sit there and think about it. But very cool element to introduce. And, man, that that really broadens the scope of this thing as, as he is told he's basically immortal, um, which, again, likens the Pinocchio story to that of artificial intelligence today and, like, what that would mean and the nature of immortality for an artificial being you know very cool and it's something that i think in the modern day and age is something that people think about with pinocchio a lot so i like that guillermo del toro is able to get that into this version i also like that death was it kind of reminded me of not quite death from sandman but like the way that death isn't this some like evil being that like is after death but actually is kind of teaching pinocchio lessons along the way and helping yeah. as well yeah because death was like you're going to be immortal now you're going to keep coming back um, and Pinocchio's like, that sounds great. And, and that's like, maybe not so much because, you know, dying is, is, is what gives gives life meaning and like that kind of stuff. Well, you'll outlive your family and a lot of that. Yeah. While we're talking about people who played characters, uh, I wanted to note the Kate Blanchett character who is Spazatura. Oh my gosh. I did not know that. No one really would. And what's really funny about this, and this is a pro I think this is a project that we'll cover. Um, Nightmare Alley is the Del Toro circus film oh, yeah. that came out 
earlier, I think a year ago or so. And Kate Blanchett was in it. And while she was working on it, she was having such a good time with Del Toro. She said, you got to put me in Pinocchio. Just I'll, I'll do anything. And he's like, I, I, everything's cast already. The only thing we have left is a monkey. And she's like, I'll play a monkey. She's like, I don't <laughs> care. I'll play a monkey. I just want to work with you again. And she was like, I, she's, she literally said, I'll play a pencil for you. So she does the voices then because the monkey voices the puppets at times. The voices and the like sound effects and yeah. weird monkey noises That's and cool. stuff like, yeah. So Kate Blanchett having and that just speaks to the I think the character of somebody like Del Toro that like so people these really, really renowned actors want to work with him this much. That tells me that like he's a joy to work with. And he also makes some of the most interesting stories out there. So um, I love that story. I thought that was one of the cooler ones I heard from behind the scenes. So after returning to the mortal realm, Pinocchio decides to earn money for Geppetto by performing in the circus as well as to avoid being conscripted into the army by the Podesta due to his immortality. In an attempt to reinstate himself as the circus star, as jealous Spazzatura reveals to Pinocchio that Volpe is conning him out of the money he falsely promised to send to his father. Hearing this, Volpe viciously beats Spazzatura, upsetting Pinocchio. In order to sabotage Volpe, Pinocchio performs a song ridiculing Benito Mussolini while he is in attendance. Mussolini has Pinocchio executed and the circus burned. While in the afterlife, death tells Pinocchio that immortality is a burden due to where while he lives, his loved ones will die. Once revived, Pinocchio finds himself being taken by the Podesta to a boot camp where other boys are trained to fight in the war. Pinocchio previously met the Podesta's son, Candlewick, and Candlewick is afraid of disappointing his father, and they end up forming a friendship. After a training game between two teams led by Pinocchio and Candlewick ends in a tie, the Podesta orders Candlewick to shoot Pinocchio. Candlewick refuses and stands up to his father. The training camp is then bombed by the Allied aircraft, killing the Podesta, while Candlewick and the other boys flee. Pinocchio is captured by Volpe, who tries to burn him to death as revenge for ruining his career. Spazachira saves Pinocchio, resulting in Volpe falling off a seaside cliff to his death alongside Pinocchio and Spazatura during a struggle with the monkey after he stands up to Volpe. Where to start? Uh, for one, I think my favorite song is in, in this section here, and that was the Chao Papa song yeah. that, that uh, comes on. I don't know if that's the name of it, honestly, but it seemed like it was. Um, I think so, yeah. Yes, very good, and, and it has that like accordion sound that I think is uh, like the perfect sound for, soundtrack for this movie. Um, it felt like that was the centerpiece song to me. And I thought it was very good. Alexandra Desplat is the musical director in this film, composer. Uh, and he had all the instruments for the recording sessions are made of wood specifically oh, for the cool. score. So that, again, t- attention to detail and saying like, you know, woodwind instruments, I guess. And then you get your harps and your guitars and things like that as well. So sure. pretty cool to note. Yeah. Totally didn't have to do that, but he he did. And yeah, that's very cool. And it works. And you noted the way that it sounded, sounded perfect, you know, acoustic in ways and wood. Yeah, I think plays a part in that way, even subliminally. Absolutely. Um, and then so so he he runs off. Pinocchio runs off to join the, the circus, basically um, to pay off the debt that he, you know, maybe has incurred for his father. It's kind of unclear whether or not that's going to be enforceable. But, you know, he gets convinced that it is. Um yeah, it, I thought that was a smart change a little bit, too. It was like a selfless act in a way, but he's also still kind of rebelling. So it's not like not like the purely selfless act that we get later. But um, he do, he is kind of doing an action here. He's taking a choice to do something that he believes is going to help um, 
his father Geppetto, even though we find out that that's not actually occurring. Um, and yeah, he becomes this star. He goes off and performs everywhere. And then um, the the Mussolini stuff was so funny. Um, I did not expect to see Mussolini show up in this film, but he does. And he's this little short puppet who gets lifted out of the car. Um, I got a note. Who The voice actor for Mussolini is Tom Kenny, who you may also know as the voice actor for SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. Um, he also plays um, the sea captain that takes. Geppetto oh yeah, out. He, says, he says "Arrivederci" before he jumps in the water. <laughs> Which I thought, uh, yeah, I didn't know if that was like an inglorious ba- bastard reference or not, but it made me think of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Which, by the way, they I, I like that they use the term "dogfish," uh, which was which was brought back for this version. Very cool. And then, yeah, the the change to the song to make it all about poop, so unexpected. I did not like. I didn't know where that came from. It's again a great moment of Pinocchio being innocent and not understanding like the magnitude of what he's doing. But anyone who can't take them, who takes themselves this seriously, uh, you know, d- there's something going on there. So I think, in general, well, and and I think Del Toro is also highlighting a very astute observation, which I've seen other people make that one of the best ways to combat fascism is to make fun of it. Is to is yeah, to undermine is to, it. Is to yeah, like undermine and show how ridiculous it is um and especially when you can to the face of the people doing it um and unfortunately it can be very dangerous but uh you know i think that that's such a powerful way to protest this kind of stuff um and yeah it's so cool that that made it into this movie you know it reminds me of like tarantino bringing hitler into his movie and killing hitler like that (laughs) that sort of thing not quite that far very different (laughs) but yeah i know what you mean Speaking of Inglorious Bastards, <laughs> I brought it up. <laughs> right. We talked about this boot camp that they go to, and I I think this is subbed out for the the Land of Toys. This is the this is his version of the Land of Toys. Such a smart change, right? The Land of Toys would be tempting. I, I could see the appeal of doing a Land of to- Toys storyline because we all live in a Land of Toys now, right? Like we all have access to so many distractions so it seems like there could be a modern tale that could be a cautionary tale about letting yourself go to the world of distractions losing sight of what's actually important right that actually seems like it could work in the modern day but instead he went this other route and he made it more about learning who to obey and who to disobey and when to stand up for yourself against people who are commanding you to do certain things yeah i would argue just like learning right from wrong too right like to, to make to simplify it because it's like his developing a moral compass and being able to trust yeah. your own moral compass and i think you know pinocchio is doing that as well as candlewick which i noted earlier and i think that the moment a moment that i actually thought was you know moving because this is difficult subject matter to navigate i feel like you have you have this fascist camp and you have to like make it look ridiculous and everything like that but then you have this moment of human nature of these two of pinocchio and this boy candlewick like bonding in the bed yeah yeah and like you're like redeeming somebody there who like you're like damn this is like a fascist and you're having to grapple with like what this kid will grow up to become and then the payoff being so so much of someone finding right from wrong and and honestly one of the harder things you can do is stand up to your parents at that age and someone you want to be proud of you in life and and a great great message for children right is that Maybe your parents don't always have the right answers. And that can be difficult for people to hear and for for children to hear sometimes. There are things that are more important than obeying your parents sometimes. That's just the reality of it. 
And yeah, I agree. I thought it was a very charming moment with them in their in, in their cots. And I love the way they were like, at one point, they're like, I like war more than you. No, I like war the best. You know, it's really <laughs> yeah. funny because they just don't know what they're talking about. And yeah, they they don't even know what it is, I think, at that point. Right. And there's there's a lot to be learned still. And it kind of shows how indoctrination happens. Right. It's all these children who are getting taught, like, you know, the best thing you can do is go die for Italy. Um, and it's very dark and very serious. Um, and, and, um, I think ultimately was the better choice if you had to choose between this and the land of toys, as much as I think there is some interesting stuff to be said about the land of toys. I I think this is, this is better. And again, this feels very different than the Pinocchio story I'd come to expect. Um, this is a big departure, but one that I thought really worked. So we get this Volpe, Volpe rolls up and is able to grab him right as he's escaping this camp. And uh, he's like going to burn him. And a moment that I wanted to note. Yeah, almost like a witch. Exactly. Or Jesus on a cross. Yeah. <laughs> like not that they burn Jesus on a cross, but he is on sort of a crucifix almost. Totally. A moment that I noted in the behind the scenes that I thought was really cool is they were there, you know, in this they're they're using obviously studio lighting they're lighting this film trying to make it look natural but one of the cool things that they did was they put leds in the torches to give off that that glow so everything's in moonlight in in the scene and you get the like really practical glow from the torches that had like an led in them so they're moving that around and eventually they add the flame and posts i thought the way that that scene played out using it he's sort of pointing it at pinocchio uh, the flame as he's about to throw it down and just the way that it looked on that cliff side was really cool and a great moment for uh, Spazzatura to like fight back against an oppressor again someone who's oppressing someone that's hard to stand up against and learning but through Pinocchio I would argue how to be an individual and sort of find your own path well Pinocchio between Spazzatura and Candlewick has turned two potential enemies into allies and that's pretty cool right like that's a it's a great message and and, and really and and the way they bond is through recognizing like a mutual oppression or a mutual abuse that's going on and connecting over that in a human way. Um, even as each of them are sort of jealous of one another. I think Candlewick is jealous of Pinocchio for being the sort of ever living boy that, you know, his father seems very excited about and much the same with Volpe, right? Like, Pinocchio is the main attraction. He's the main draw. And now all of a sudden Spazzatura is like, what the hell? Like I've been here all along helping you. So it was cool to see Spazzatura, you know, attack and then they fall off the side of the cliff. And that's sort of where we left this, this section. So I'll move here into the next part. Lost at sea, Pinocchio and Spazzatura are swallowed by a giant dogfish. Inside the monster's belly, Pinocchio and Spazzatura find Geppetto and Sebastian, who were also swallowed during their search for Pinocchio. Thanks to an idea by Sebastian, Pinocchio lies to make his nose grow into a large branch, thus forming a bridge leading out the monster's blowhole. Making their escape as the monster attempts to eat them again, Pinocchio sacrifices himself by detonating a naval mine inside the monster, killing them both. Upon meeting death again, Pinocchio demands to be sent back early to save Geppetto from drowning. Death warns him that doing so will make him mortal, but Pinocchio breaks the hourglass to return and ends up drowning while saving his father. The wood sprite reappears to a mourning Geppetto, and after saying that while he failed, he also tried to guide him, Sebastian uses his wish to make her revive Pinocchio. Pinocchio returns home with his father, Sebastian, and Spazzatura to live together as a family. Outliving all of his loved ones, Pinocchio decides to travel the world. And I will note that the final shot is a pine cone falling, and the, the cricket has the line about 
enjoy life while you're here because it's finite basically and that's what makes it special and but it begins the film begins and ends with this pine cone yeah very cool um wouldn't it have been funny uh this wouldn't have fit in the movie at all but wouldn't it have been funny if pinocchio right before he detonated the mind was like smile you son of a bitch yeah <laughs> or yippee <laughs> Well, I'm speaking specifically hit, like, of Jaws because I, I thought this moment where the dogfish was chasing them and they were like paddling away on the stuff was very reminiscent of the end of Jaws. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and then explosion happens inside the, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I was definitely thinking of that. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it probably was. Um, man, so many cool things here. I, I, I will say like this, this, it felt like this is where, of course, the story has to go. Like this is the, this is the uh, finale of the book too. Um, and by the time we got here, I was like, do I even care about the dogfish now? Do I even care about, you know, this situation? But because of Geppetto's relationship and the work they'd done early in the story to really sell that and this new alliance he had with Spezzatura, like all this stuff made it to where I was very invested in this story, um, and very invested in Geppetto being rescued and then being reunited. And then, uh, the way it plays out with these minds and Pinocchio getting blown up and dying um, and then trying to come back and this race against time is he's like, I don't have an, you know, I can't wait uh, to get back. And then he makes the negotiation of, well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to become mortal, which he does. And then that's actually when he explodes and dies. So, um, you know, all of that is when he drowns. Does he drown? Yeah, he blows himself up. He comes back because because he's dead there. He comes back to try to save Geppetto and he's trying to swim with Geppetto, but gets him on shore and drowns Okay, just from the effort. And that's what eventually gets him. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't sure. It, he definitely dies. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you know, that ends up being the wish that brings him back. I think from the part that he blows himself up and on is the part that I was crying. Like, I just, yeah. I don't know if it was my mood when I was watching it or what. I'm not necessarily like an easy person to cry, mm-hmm. but I felt like it was, it was really moving and the work was done. And it just like it hit me, boom, right in the heart. So when you set when you set up a moment like that and it pays off, like this, yeah, you know, that's like some of the best shit you'll ever encounter. It made me really appreciate the end of this film too, because as it continues, like there's a moment where you can you, the Disney ending happens, and they could have ended it and just said they lived happily ever after. But Del Toro does the work of also saying the point of this film is life and death. The point is enjoy is is really make the most of life because it is finite. And like, I think that message, while uh, that makes it adult to me as well, because it's, it's, that was definitely an adult element there at the end. You're, you're having to grapple with your mortality. And as a kid, maybe you're not able to handle this, or maybe this is the first time that you're doing that, but it's an important sort of growing moment. And I think that like, it's always something that you'll think about because it's like the thing that's going to happen to everyone. It's taking, it's taking kids seriously. It's treating them seriously and saying, yeah, like we, we saw Geppetto struggle with the loss of his son early throughout. We see him struggling with the potential loss of Pinocchio. At the end, we see Pinocchio have to deal with the loss of Geppetto. And that's something that, you know, kids don't want to think about the loss of their parents, but that is a reality is that that could happen. I mean, more than likely will happen, you know, it's like, you, you it, that, but that's the one thing that Geppetto, that Pinocchio was able to give Geppetto was he outlived a child, which I think is, is unnatural in most cases. And I think a lot of people feel that that would be worse than, you know, seeing a parent go is seeing a child go before their time. And 
that was something that Pinocchio was able to give Geppetto, even though there is this really bittersweet, sad ending where everybody's everybody goes. Well, and, and, and it's not a resurrection of Carlo. I think very importantly, this is not Carlo coming back. One of the things we highlighted in the last version was how I felt the end of Carlo Collodi's novel. There was a tragic, sad moment that the author does not view as tragic or sad, clearly, but I did. That was the moment where Pinocchio is turned into a real boy and looks over at the discarded puppet version of his former self and thinks how pathetic I used to look, how how embarrassing that was. I am so much better now that I am a real boy. And then they leave the puppet. And I thought that that was a sad moment. And, and I thought that that was, a, that was a con- being pushed to conform. It was losing what makes you unique and interesting and different and instead conforming to what society expects you to do, which was the whole point of the tale. I mean, and that's that quote that I read from Del Toro, that, that's exactly what he's reacting to, that, that he, fe- he feels that there is no transformation needed physically. It's, it's an emotional transformation. Becoming a real boy is, is not a physical yeah. manifestation. That's not the point. Like becoming a real boy isn't like, it feels like some sort of like coded language or something or if some you know what i mean it feels like something's being said there but really the the idea behind it isn't to become a boy it's to become what society thinks of you as like an adult or something like that as like a like a full functioning member of society and so that's like the the thing that del toro is getting at is like you don't have to do what everybody says to be that version you know what i mean you can just emotionally come to to what you know be a good person is still at the heart of this, but be a good person in, on your own path. Yeah, be a good person, not the physical representation of what society expects a person to look like. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's very that's two very distinct things, and we shouldn't conflate the two. And and I love that he doesn't here at the end, which the story often does. Um, I did want to highlight before we leave it behind. Um, I thought it was another really smart change to have Pinocchio choose to lie to grow his nose. Um, I'm not sure that might that might exist in other versions of the story. I don't remember it from the book. Um, but I think it is like a good distinction of like lying is bad and as shown as bad throughout the movie. Yet there are times where maybe you do need to lie. You know what I mean? Like to save a life. To, to you know what I mean? Like depending on the situation. And I love that he kind of, you know, I think uh, he, he, Geppetto says like just this once, but he just tells all these lies until his nose grows super huge. It's also kind of like one of Pinocchio's superpowers that he's had the whole movie and he didn't really realize that his the, the utility of it. And it's seen as a drawback. It's seen as like a bad thing and to use to, to good utility, I think is smart. And I, I read that in interviews, Del Toro has stated that in his version, Pinocchio's nose grows not just when he lies, but when he is not true to himself. So this adds an intriguing interpretation to the way his nose grows organically. It is a visual indication that his grip on his personhood is fading away, and he is in danger of returning to the base materials from which he came. I like that because in the versions uh, in this, and also I think I've seen elsewhere, you know, as the nose gets longer, it starts to sprout leaves and it starts to become more tree-like, which is a reversion. Uh, away from the personhood that a puppet is is like starting to attain. So I think that thematically totally tracks even with like original or older versions of the story. It's, it's very smart. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Ewan McGregor too. Like uh, the, the Cricket comes back and uh, decides to use his wish. And I thought there was another really kind of laugh out loud moment where 
he's like, you know, I, I, I didn't, I maybe I didn't do, you know, what I said I was going to do, but I did my best and that's the best anyone can do. I taught it to him and he taught it straight back to me. <laughs> and I, yeah. I loved that. Um, you know, and, and I loved, there was a couple of re- recurring gags um, with him where he's like starting to this, sing this song about his father and then he gets interrupted. Um, and I loved at the end in the credits, he actually does get to sing the song. Well, and he also like at the end, we see a clip of him. He's actually telling all of the story because all the characters die at the end other than Pinocchio. He's actually telling the story from the afterlife. All right. Well, I think we're at the period where we need to decide book or film. Um, In this case, I'll start just for brevity's sake. Uh, I've talked about my love of this film a lot. I think that there's a lot to be said for the book and the original telling of this story and the, the source material because it is still seen as probably one of the one of the greatest children's stories of all time. Definitely. I think that there are there are things in it that don't necessarily hold up, but it was written in the 1800s. So, you know, seems to be at least somewhat acceptable now, even even though it's quite old. The idea and the the things that have come out of Pinocchio as a story, you know, we've talked about the AI sort of relationship and the things that we'll be thinking about for a long time to come. But I just feel like I said very early in this episode, I feel like Del Toro elevated this for me. He modernized it in ways that I feel where it made it much more complex. He he changed characters entirely he changed Pinocchio fundamentally and it still works as a Pinocchio film and just the craftsmanship I'm always going to champion stop motion animation and animation in general it's not a genre animation is not a genre it's a it's a form it's a way to it's a mode of telling stories so I I don't like to, to for people to think that they're for kids and this one definitely I don't think is I think it's maybe geared towards kids but there's a lot that's, that an adult could enjoy out of this film. Yeah, I, I think if you look at like target audience, it's children, but you know, totally it's a story that appeal, can appeal to everyone. So yeah, for for all those reasons, I, I'm going with the film in this case. Totally, man. Uh, I, I, you know, I won't belabor it. I think for a lot of the same reasons, I'm going to also take the film. Uh, yeah, shout out to the original book. It is it is such an important piece of literature and a really cool stepping stone that we've talked about and really kind of uh, in the history of children's lit. I think it's an interesting one to look at, but when we're talking about like, personally what's better this is this is the pinocchio for me now and it replaces which may be controversial to me this replaces the disney film as my version of pinocchio this is my this is the one i'm gonna go to oh yeah every time yeah but uh we will probably cover that in a bonus episode so check out our patreon patreon.com forward slash ink to film i think we're basically committed to doing that very soon so if you're interested in hearing on us talk about the disney version and it was also revolutionary for animation at the time there's a lot to dig into with that patreon.com forward slash ink to film you can become a patron for just two dollars a month absolutely and make sure to uh cast those votes on our our quarterly project as we talked about at the start of the episode if you like this uh coverage of pinocchio please let us know in the form of a rating and review whatever app you chose to listen on shout out this episode in particular or these episodes in particular and let us know we'd love to hear from you leave us five stars and make sure to check out our social media accounts we're on facebook twitter instagram tiktok we're on all platforms at ink to film on all of those and you know send us a message share this around and and tell other Pinocchio fans. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man, uh, all that's left is for us to go to New York City. Have a good time there. Uh, We we thank you for your patience as we release them from the vault episodes. Um, And we'll be back in a few weeks. And until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.